Greetings, everyone. Like the pastor said, my name is Michael Dinger. I serve as one of the pastors at, at Cornerstone Baptist in Central Florida, and uh, I am very grateful. And Pastor Rick is telling the truth. You know, when people ask me how I was called into the ministry, I said, you know, by a telephone call. Um, pastor Rick called me one day and asked if I would like to serve as a pastor at Cornerstone. Um, you know, and the Lord used him as a means to call me into the ministry. So he was telling the truth about that, but he gets no credit <laughs> or no blame, <laughs> whatever, whatever is appropriate. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. And let us read. We'll read the entire psalm. Psalm 110, verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek the Lord is at your right hand he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath he will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses he will shatter chiefs Over the wide earth, and he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. That is the word of God. Let's pray now and ask for the Lord's blessing during this time. Gracious Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for sending a Savior into the world for sinners. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this day that you have given to us and how you have blessed us, drawn near to us by the preaching of your word and in our fellowship and in our times of prayer and worship by song. Lord, we thank you. I'm very grateful for how you have dealt with my soul today. I pray, Lord, now that you would please help me. Help me to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Help me to speak your word accurately. Help me to proclaim it faithfully. I pray for the people as well. I pray that you would help them to set their mind upon Christ who is seated in the heavens at your right hand, that they would set all their hope in him and that they would delight in his great salvation. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Psalm 110. Matthew Henry said of this psalm, it is pure gospel. It is the only, it is only and wholly concerning Christ the Messiah, promised to the fathers and expected by them. Martin Luther designated this psalm as the crown and pearl of messianic psalms and that it is worthy to be overlaid with precious jewels. This psalm is a deposit, an inestimable deposit into the vault of revelation concerning Christ. What we have before us is a window, a window through which we may behold the majesty of our Redeemer. The central theme of the psalm is Messiah, who is Christ, the anointed, eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father, the elect Redeemer, the one appointed by the Father to be the only Savior for sinners, the one who is both God and man, two distinct persons, two distinct natures in one person forever. God, eternal God, who was born of the virgin woman, both the Son of God and the Son of David. It is of he who has no beginning or no end, who was in the beginning with God and who was God, 
The one who made the heavens and the earth and then stepped down from heaven into the earth he created, partaking of human flesh, the one full of grace and truth. And having descended from heaven into the world, he lived and he died and he rose from the grave on the third day. Being loosed from the pains of death, he ascended back into the heavens in victory, in power, and in glory where he now sits at the right hand of God as the exalted prophet, priest, and king over his people. This morning, or excuse me, this evening, I, I, I thought I was preaching in the morning. So, I mean, it wasn't in my notes, but it was ingrained this evening. May we all learn of him. May we all learn of him that we may bow down and pay homage to this king and that we might truly profit from the word of the prophet and that we might go to this great high priest and trust in the sacrifice of himself because we are by nature rebellious, blind and guilty May we behold him, that we might receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among the holy ones, incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away through him. The subject of Christ's session, the title of the sermon is Christ is in Session. Christ is in Session. The subject of Christ's session is concerned with his current status as the exalted God-man and mediator, seated in the heavens as risen Lord, reigning, speaking, and serving at the right hand of God, from which he will return in flaming fire to judge the wicked and to deliver his people the people given him by the Father before the ages, ages began. I hope to cover this psalm in its entirety under five brief points. Point one, the reign of Messiah. Point two, the word of Messiah. Point three, the people of Messiah. Point four, the service of Messiah. And point five, the wrath of Messiah. The reign, the word the people, the service, and the wrath of Messiah, who is Christ, God's anointed Redeemer. So first on your notes, the reign of Messiah. Christ is King. What a suitable name for a Reformed Baptist church. As we consider Christ as King, I want you to ask yourself the question, when you come through the doors of this chapel, do you think about that? That Christ is the king. And do you come through those doors with a heart attitude of one who acknowledges him as king? A heart that is humble and submissive to his rule. A heart that has been subdued by his grace. Every time you come to church or every time you think about this church, you should remember Christ is king. So verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the first of several propositional statements made by the psalmist, whom we are told is David, the son of Jesse, the sweet psalmist, and the greatest king that the nation of Israel ever had. The statement that David makes is concerning the word of Yahweh. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. And in, in many of your Bibles, the Lord is in all capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And it's a translation, something that the translators do to specify and show that this is Yahweh in Hebrew or Jehovah in Hebrew. So the statement that David is making is concerning the word of Yahweh. It is the oracle of Yahweh. To Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, my Adonai, my master, David's Lord, 
and master, the Messiah. It is as if David enters into a divine conversation between the Father and the Son, the first and the second persons of the Trinity. And what he hears is astounding. astounding. It's, it's fascinating. It's something that we can just gloss right over because it is pregnant with meaning. And what does he hear? He, by the Spirit, declares the eternal Father, Yahweh, says to Adonai, his eternal Son, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. At the right hand of Yahweh. At the right hand of Yahweh is not to be understood merely as a particular physical location at the right hand as opposed to the left hand. No. This right hand, this is at the right hand in the sense of how the phrase was used in monarchical societies, right? This is the language from the days of kings and sovereign rulers where the right hand is the right hand of power and dominion. The right hand was a picture or a display of the king's right to rule and govern. Even if a king was left-handed by birth, he would hold his scepter in his right hand, his scepter or his rod. It was considered the strong hand, the hand with which mighty deeds are done. It was the hand with which he defeated his enemies and provided for his subjects. It signified his right to rule, right? his authority, his honor, and his preeminence. So then, to be seated at the right hand of Yahweh, as has been given by way of oracle to David's son and David's Lord, signifies Christ's reign as king on the throne. He is the one who defeats the enemies of God, who protects and provides for God's people. Christ, being seated at the right hand of God, communicates that it is he, it is Christ, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is above all rulers. He is the only sovereign potentate, king of kings and lord of lords. In other words, verse 1, it's a declaration. Christ is king. Christ is king. This truth is further reinforced by what follows when Yahweh says, until I make your enemies your footstool. This statement is also reminiscent of days bygone. It was used to describe the custom of conquerors after having defeated their foes and bringing them into subjection to themselves. They would, they would bring them out in a procession to the public and lay them down on the ground and put their feet on the neck of the conquered, making out of them a footstool for their feet. In this picture, we see one of the ways that Christ executes the office of a king. In Keech's Catechism, question 29, we're asked, how does Christ execute the office of a king? To which we answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in his restraining and conquering all of his enemies. And a part of this answer I want us to consider briefly in particular is his conquering of all of his and our enemies. That's what he does as king. That's what good kings do for their people. The enemies of Christ and God's precious people could be summarized in this. The world, the flesh, the devil, and the wicked. The world, the flesh, the devil, and the wicked. And these we are told in Scripture, Christ has overcome, he has condemned, he has destroyed, and will indeed judge in righteousness. John sixteen thirty three, Christ says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. In Romans 3, 
The Apostle Paul says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Also, Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil. You see, he has done this work of conquering already by the cross. In his humiliation, he reigns as king. He tasted death. He suffered shame and spitting, hated and rejected by the world, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief bearing away the sins of his people, the chastisement for their peace, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that stood against us. He has taken it out of the way, they being nailed to the cross of Calvary. And in this, in his death, he made a spectacle of principalities and powers triumphing over them in it. He reigns in death. The ancient foe is laid to rest. This is a very important note that I'm go- a point that I'm going to make now concerning Christ's session. Because I just I just said he reigned as king in his humiliation. Right? He reigns in death. But what is being spoken of here, where Yahweh calls Messiah to sit at his right hand, is something that Yahweh said not because or by means of the virtue of his pre-incarnate deity. Yahweh did not say to the Son, sit at my right hand because he is God. No. Christ was not appointed to sit in the place of honor and authority merely because he is God the Son, but rather the Son was awarded this special place of privilege at the right hand of Yahweh because of his humiliation and sufferings as our Redeemer. The Son was given a job to do as our mediator. And when he had finished the work that the Father gave him to do, and only then was he raised and exalted as our risen King, in this peculiar way, at the right hand of the Father. He is the captain of our salvation made perfect through suffering. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Philippians 2, 7 to 11 says, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, or because of his suffering, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, it was not, he was not seated at the right hand of the Father because he is God the Son, but he was seated at the right hand of the Father because he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was exalted because he finished the work that the Father gave him to do as our mediator. You see why I say, or you see why Matthew Henry said, The 110th Psalm is pure gospel. It's pure gospel, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is of this son, which David speaks in Psalm 110. He speaks not of himself and not another, but of Christ, the Messiah, his his Lord, crucified in weakness, but raised in power. 
The Apostle Peter makes this plain. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The Apostle Peter makes it plain. This important connection between the humiliation of Christ, that is that he came down in the incarnation and further down into suffering and even further down into death and the grave only to come up in his resurrection and further up in his ascension back into heaven in clouds of glory and even further up into a state of exaltation and session, seated at the right hand, ruling and reigning over all. This Peter makes plain as he interprets and applies the 110th Psalm on the day of Pentecost. As he's preaching the gospel, he's explaining the gospel and he's telling the people what they are experiencing on that fateful day who were present, who were seeing the mighty works of God. He says in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of that all of us are witnesses. And being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing today. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So from these things, may we contemplate and consider and understand the reign of Messiah that he is king, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Let me ask you, have you bowed the knee to this king? Do you come to him and pay homage as you ought to and as he so deserves? Or do you, like the Proverbs warns us, Do you exalt yourself in the presence of the king? Do you live in rebellion against the king? What I'm asking in a very simple way is this. Are you following Christ Jesus by faith? Have you repented and are you repenting of your sin? Have you trusted and are you trusting in him for your salvation? I'm not asking if you've made a decision. I'm not asking if you try your hardest to do the best thing. I'm not asking if you come to church regularly. I'm asking you, are you born again? Do you live and serve this king by repentant faith? If you are not, you make yourself the enemy of this king, the king of glory, who is a man of war, mighty in battle, He is the one who is seated on the white horse, wearing a robe that is dipped in blood. He treads the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. He is the one who judges and makes war. He is your adversary. I therefore entreat you, do not be a fool. Do not be a fool and go up against this king. Jesus said said, when calling people to count the cost of following Christ, what king is there who having 10,000 men and going against a a king with 50,000 men doesn't sit down first and count the cost, whether they have enough to face that king? No, don't be a fool. It's the king of kings and the Lord of lords that you're dealing with. 
and you are no match. So as Psalm 2 says, kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. He extends an offer of peace to us now, even now. An offer of peace and pardon. He promises protection and provision to all who will lay down their weapons of warfare against him. That is to turn. What does that mean? Lay down your weapons of war. Turn. Turn from your sins. Do not hold on to your precious sins. Do not choose your way over his way. Do not choose yourself over him. But repent and believe in the gospel. As a king, he subdues his people to himself. He rules and defends those who were once his enemies. Think about it. I know you're tired. I know it's starting to set in. But you need to think, like, not because of me, but as the Spirit said through David, there are very precious things here for the people of God. Things that you need in the battle. Because each and every one of us still has a measure of rebellion in our heart. And we need to constantly be reminded that He is King. And we are, He has subdued us to Himself. And we are to give to Him the homage. So now, even as the word of God is being preached, as the prophet sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and sends his word forth, right? he makes his ministers a flame of fire. By the Spirit, he brings the word of God. Let us, let us take heed. Let us take heed. He is not only king, but he is prophet. He not only executes the office of a king, but the office of a prophet. He rules in the midst of his enemies, making them his willing people. You might not, at first glance, see or recognize, but I believe, verse 2, there is, a, there is an implication. I believe his prophetic ministry is implied in verse 2. The, the Lord says again, Yahweh says again now to the Messiah, the Lord sends forth, excuse me, David says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Here, Christ's royal rod or scepter is said to be the rod of his power by which he causes his enemies to come and bow down before him in willing subjection. And this mighty scepter is said to come forth out of Zion, which is Jerusalem. This mighty scepter, we should understand, to be in the light of progress of revelation. Right? Like somebody say, oh, you see the, the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ in verse 2? Aren't you reading into the text? Yes, in a lawful way. I'm reading New Testament revelation into the text just like David was, uh, just like Peter was doing with Psalm 110. Right? He understood that it was Christ that was crucified. He was the king of Israel. He is the one who is ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand, just as David said in Psalm 110. So in the, in the progress of Revelation, one moment, I knocked my... Yeah, in the progress of Revelation, right, um, we should understand the mighty scepter to be the gospel of the kingdom of God, like the gospel of Christ's rule, which is by the working of the Spirit, the power of God unto salvation. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. This gospel was revealed in the fullness of time, when Christ came saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. I want you to make the connections. I pray the Spirit helps you to make the connections. The gospel is the gospel of the king. It's the gospel of Christ's rule. It was the will of the Father that this message be preached in the power of the Spirit first in Jerusalem. So in that sense, we could say that the gospel was sent forth out of Zion. 
And after Jerusalem and all Judea and then in Samaria, Samaria, even to the utter ends of the earth. And it is by this everlasting gospel that the enemies of God are made into his willing and holy subjects. That is why I would say that Christ's office of a prophet is implied here. Because Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to sinners by the word and spirit the will of God for salvation. In the scriptures, it was said that the Messiah would serve as a prophet to the people. Deuteronomy 18.18 I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. A prophet is one who serves as a spokesperson for God to the people. A prophet is called to listen to God and to speak to the people. In this way, Christ is referred to as the messenger of the covenant or wonderful counselor. He is the one who brings sight to the blind. We need a prophet because by nature we are blind to the things of God. We are ignorant to God and his salvation. And we need a prophet to come and speak the truth to us. And he does. He brings sight to the blind, wisdom and understanding to the ignorant, and great light to those who sit in darkness. In his humiliation, that is in the days of his suffering, he executed this office everywhere that he went. He went about all of the cities teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. As the Old Testament prophets, right, they, they were given immediate revelation from God concerning divine mysteries. They then proclaimed and exposited the word of God. They foretold the coming of future events and they also had their message and ministry affirmed by miraculous wonders. Now, if you think of the Gospels, Jesus Christ in, uh, was the prophet par excellence. Right? He also received wisdom and revelation from his Father. Right? John 5.20, For the Father loves the Son and showed, shows him all things that he is doing. Christ said, I have not spoken on my own authority, but my Father who sent me has himself given me command regarding what I am to say and to speak. What the Father gave him by revelation, he did not hide, he did not hold back, he did not put his light under a basket, but as a prophet, his lamp was set in the middle of the house that it might give light to all who are in darkness. To his disciples, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business, but instead I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. He loved his own and having loved them to the end, he manifested the name of the Lord to them to those that the Father had gave him out of the world. As a prophet, he gave his people the word of truth that they might have eternal life, which is to know God. You just think about the word. For those who are ignorant, what do they lack? They, they lack the knowledge of God. He came that they might know God and Christ whom he sent, that they might have eternal life. No one has ever seen God except for the one who came from God, the Christ. It is he who has explained him. Christ, the invisible, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, he who upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification of sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's Christ's, that's Christ's prophetic ministry in his humiliation in, the, in, the, in his, the days of his suffering. But 
He's not in his days of suffering anymore. He is exalted to the right hand in session, seated, and he continues to execute the office of a prophet. How does he do that? He does that by sending the Holy Spirit and the word of the gospel with power to save. So then, Christ administers the office of a prophet both Externally, if you think about it, when the gospel is preached, his, the office, Christ's office of a prophet is being executed because the word of God is going forth. But he also administers this office internally when the Holy Spirit takes the word of the gospel and illuminates with saving light the darkened understanding of the lost and gives them light and life who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Christ comes to us even now, even now in the preaching of the word, to open the eyes of the blind and to open the ears of the deaf. He speaks through his people. We, his people. Christ executes the office of a prophet through us as we proclaim the wonders of God, his marvelous deeds. He speaks out of the heavenly Zion. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. He sends them out to preach the gospel everywhere to every creature. And he speaks as the word of God is preached. Every Sunday here in this place, Christ is speaking to you. In in Cornerstone, in Florida, every Sunday, Christ is speaking to us. He speaks in our Bible studies. He speaks when we open our Bible and we read. As a prophet, he sits in session at the right hand of of the Father speaking to us. He speaks also in our consciences when the Spirit of God brings to our remembrance the Word of God. So see to it then that you do not reject him. Right? In the Old Testament, example after example after example of people who would not take heed to his words. What happened? They were utterly destroyed. They were not permitted to enter into an eternal rest because their hearing was not mixed with faith. So see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who spoke to them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? Have you heard him? Have you received his words? Have you believed the testimony which the Spirit has borne of Christ Jesus? Have you seen yourself as one who is blind and ignorant? and in darkness, without understanding. Have you seen your need for this prophet? If you still do not follow Christ, if you have not turned from your sins to him, after all that he has said to you, after all of the times that through the word he has entreated you to come to him for forgiveness and mercy, and yet you choose other things over him, You choose yourself. You choose the world. You prefer your sin over him. Would he, after all of that, would he not be just to just cut you off and speak to you no more? To turn from you and to leave you to your eternal demise. He would be right to do that. Do not test him. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. He speaks to you now from heaven to take from him the eye salve of the gospel that you might see the truth as it is in Jesus. And for us who are true Christians, as we consider our great redeemer and prophet, it should cause us to rejoice and to be glad, to be grateful As the song says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The one who said, let the light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He opened our eyes. He turned us from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that we might receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in him. That is why we serve him. That is why we serve the king, right? We love him because he first loved us, because he gave himself for us. That is why the people of Messiah are a willing people. The people of Messiah are a willing people. I have no idea what time it is or what time I'm supposed to stop. The people of Messiah. Point three on your notes. A willing people. Verse three says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Literally, your people will be free will offerings on the day of your power. The people of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a special people, zealous for good works, described here as those dressed in holy garments. The people of God are holy, set apart, set apart from the world, set apart from sin to serve God. These are the ones that John saw following their king in triumph, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, riding on white horses. Without this holiness, no one will see the Lord. All of God's people will be a holy people. Their lives will be decidedly marked by a new relationship to sin. They will war against the flesh. They will put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. They will resist and flee temptation. There will be a settled disposition of disgust with that which God hates, that which offends their king. It's amazing. You you think about him seated at the right hand of the Father as king, him sending forth his mighty scepter, the power of the gospel, right, to rule over his enemies. That That is what makes rebels his willing people. That is what makes rebels his willing people. The enemies of God, right? The enemies of God, for those willing people, the enemies of God become their enemies on the day of his power. The things that God hates, they hate. The things that God loves, they love. That begins at the day of his power, the day of their salvation. And this is a a very interesting phrase. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Messiah will have no lack of willing people, even to the end of the ages. It's easy to misunderstand this text, but it's, it's better understood, I believe, as this. As there is a new birth of dew every morning, right? So from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. I I prefer this reading. As there is a new birth of dew every morning, so will be your youth. Not your youth as 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 opposed to the Messiah's old age, like the the Messiah's youth as opposed to the Messiah's old age, no. But the, the Messiah's youth in the sense of the Messiah's children. In other words, day by day unto the end of all things, the gospel reign of Christ shall prevail in order that there will always be a fresh enlistment of recruits into the armed forces of the king, the Messiah. The Messiah will not fail to have a seed for himself. The Lamb of God will receive the reward of his offerings. So when you wake up in the morning and you go outside and there's fresh dew on the grass, and the next morning you go out, there's fresh dew on the grass, and the next morning you go out and there's fresh dew on the grass, That's how the gospel is going to work in this fallen world until the end of the ages. The gospel is going to bear fruit and God is going to save sinners until the end of days. Christ once said, here I am and the children that God has given me. I will sing praises to God in the midst of the great 
assembly. I will go to the temple of the Lord with a mighty throng. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Micah 5, 7 to 9 uses this um, imagery of the dew in a like manner. It says, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which, de- which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forests and like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which when it goes through, it treads down and it tears in pieces and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. And that's how Messiah rules now. He rules by his gospel. And we are enlisted in his army. And the Messiah will always have a people for himself. He will because he has offered up himself as a sacrifice and a sweet-smelling aroma to God in order to purchase for his people an eternal redemption. We see that in verse 4, right? In the service of Messiah, Christ is priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Being exalted above the heavens, this glorious one now sits not only as king and prophet, but also as our high priest who has passed through the heavens. We need a priest. We need a priest because we are weak, we are corrupted with, and guilty of sin. What is a priest? In one sense, a priest is a go-between, an advocate, a mediator, one who stands before God on behalf of man, a representative. Hebrews 5.1 says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You're very familiar with the language of the Old Testament. The great high priest, once a year, enters into the Holy of Holies with blood. He was there to offer sacrifice for sin and pacify the wrath of God on behalf of the people. He was there to sprinkle the mercy seat with blood and make intercession on behalf of the guilty. He would go, he would go into the presence of the Lord, into the Holy of Holies, wearing the breastplate with stones representing the 12 tribes of his people, bearing them, as it were, on his heart into the presence of God. But the high priests under the Levitical order were sinners. They were just types and shadows. They needed to offer sacrifices for their sins as well as for the people's. To add to that, the blood of sacrificial bulls and goats could never take away sins. And also, those sacrifices under the law had no ability to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. It was only a continual reminder of their guilt and a temporary, a temporary covering. That's why they had to do it over and over and over and over again. And those priests, they were cut off by death. They did not have any continuing ministry or service on behalf of the people. But Christ, our priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, continues forever by the power of an indestructible life. He entered into the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of a heifer, but with his own blood, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he offered himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine wrath and reconcile us to God once and for all. Consequently, The author of Hebrews says in in chapter 7, verse 25, 26, consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And when he went, when he went into the heavens, ascended into the heavens and sat at the right hand of the Father as our priest, our names were written on his hands Our names were graven on his heart. If it weren't for him, we would be barred 
from entering into the presence of God. If it were not for him, we would still be in our sins, guilty and liable to judgment. If it were not for this priest, we would still be at enmity with God, hostile and hateful towards him. But he, once and for all, at the end of the ages, came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And when he did, when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. If you think about that, right now he sits, right? So in his humiliation, he offers himself a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. In his exaltation, he enters into the real tabernacle, not made with hands, but into the heavens, into the very presence of God. And there, he is our representative. His presence before the throne is a continual plea on our behalf. It is a plea. He doesn't sit at the right hand of the Father begging and groveling. No, his very presence is an argument to the throne. He is an advocate. John, 1 John 1, chapter 2. My, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yeah. God's people, that is those who are willing, it's a shame that I would have to qualify that, right? God's people, those who are the willing and the holy, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have a priest. That is why John says this in verse nine of chapter one. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Notice he doesn't say, God is faithful and merciful to forgive our sins or God is faithful and gracious to forgive our sins but he says specifically in connection with this advocate God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's because when a, when a true Christian sins they have Christ and Christ is like a defense lawyer before a judge. He has in his wounds an argument for the dismissal of all their guilt. And not only that, but in his wounds, he has a claim on every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that he purchased for them by his blood. Therefore, it is rightfully theirs. The forgiveness of sins is rightfully theirs. Every spiritual blessing is rightfully the believers in Christ Jesus because they have this priest, this advocate. Matthew Henry said, all the favors that come from God to man and all the service that comes from man to God pass through his hands. Because of this, we should have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. There is so much more that could be said but I'm going to just finish up here with this. In, verse, in verse five to, verses five to seven, I want to speak briefly about the wrath of Messiah. The wrath of Messiah. The day of wrath. The day of the wrath of the Lamb will come. It says in verses five to seven, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, or really it's in the singular. It could be translated, he will shatter the head over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. The day of the wrath of the Lamb will come, and the lion of the tribe of Judah will devour And that day is coming like a fiery furnace, burning like an oven. The Lord Jesus will return to judge the wicked. He will come to pour out wrath and retribution on all who do not know God in truth and those who do not obey the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. And every eye will see him. And the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will flee to the hills. But on that day, there will be no escape for the guilty. There will be no escape on that day. There will be no hope for the one without a prophet. There will be no refuge for the rebel apart from Christ the King. Now is the appointed time. Now is the day of salvation. It is the time to have mercy. If you will have mercy from God, you must have it now. You must have it today. You must have it in this life. Because when that day is come, there is no mercy in judgment. We must come to him who is prophet, priest, and king for his people. Because he and he alone can save us who by nature are rebellious, ignorant, and guilty. Let us turn. Let us turn to him for he is able to save to the uttermost. And brothers and sisters, our Redeemer was not slack. Just think about this. Please hear me. I'm going to be finishing in just a moment. If you take, if you take very little from this message tonight, you must take this from this message tonight. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not slack in the accomplishment of our salvation. He is not slack in applying it to us as his chosen people. And he is coming and he will not tarry. What manner of people ought we then to be but in holiness and faith always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our time is short and our life is but a vapor? As I conclude, the last line in our text says this, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head, which I take to be an allusion to the fervor of a mighty warrior on mission and in hot pursuit of his enemies, though dying of thirst refuses to take respite for a moment until his work is done. That's what the Messiah was like. He had his forehead set like flint and he was set on the salvation of his people. He could not stop but go to Jerusalem for us. He went about working and doing good. This mighty warrior, the one who will only drink by the brook, this mighty warrior will only drink if by perhaps he might find a brook or a stream on the way of his conquest. He didn't have time to, to stop and sit down and to take it easy. No, he, if he was going to get a drink, it was going to be on the move. That was the fervor of our Lord in the salvation of his people. And now look, after giving his life a ransom for our souls, his, his head is now lifted up in glory. If he, our king, has so conquered for us, should we not take dominion for the sake of his name? Should we not take dominion over our emotions, over our roles and responsibilities, over our work, over our relationships, over our hearts, over our sins for his glory? If he has, as our prophet, opened our eyes and spoken the word of God to us, Should we not cherish and obey his word? Should we not also speak his word to other people? Should we not let our light shine in this world that those who see it should glorify God on the day of his visitation? If he, as our priest, has so offered himself to God and continually appears in heaven before the throne on our behalf, should we not offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God? And should we not appear here on earth before men for him? In kingly language, and we'll close here, the Lord gives us our marching orders as our king. Matthew chapter 28, 18 and 19. He has spoken All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age.
So let us be about the king's business and let us pray. He is with us. Gracious Father, blessing, honor, praise, and glory be to you who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We thank you for our King, our prophet, our priest. We thank you for this great salvation that you have wrought through him and you have give, given to us as your people. We, we pray you'd help us to cherish him She would help us to set our eyes on Christ, on the things above where Christ is seated at your right hand. Help us to be a faithful people. Help us to serve diligently in your armed forces. Help us to be faithful to preach the gospel. Help us not to forget or be slack in our mission here. What a what a savior. Hallelujah. What a savior. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for this day. We pray that you would seal these things to our heart and help us to serve you faithfully. In Christ's name, amen.